Hello. This week, the first week of March 2023, someone who, quite frankly, is part of the journey of this podcast as much as anyone, if not more so. I respect them and they teach me to see the world not only through their eyes, but in different ways. They confront me and they challenge me as they seek to understand more. And they're a listener of the cast, the podcast, and this broadcast. And they share it with people and they discuss it with me and perhaps other people. And I'm very grateful and very blessed for that. And they inquired specifically um, with an observation that the last four weeks, I've definitely discussed time quite a bit. And we exchanged messages and talked a little bit about the idea that, yeah, I've been talking about time a lot because I think that there is a lot of information that we require But one of the things that's important is that we understand the impact time is having on us and how we define time, as I discussed last week. The reason for that is because this is a journey. And as inspired by my friend, I'm going to tell you a little bit about where this journey is going to take us, give you more of a considered view of the podcast in general at the start this week. So my intention, squarely, is to take us all on a journey through time and age, and then take us into identity, understand origins and um, main character energy and being a protagonist and our own arcs and our own hero's journey and what Joseph Campbell meant by all the gods and all the monsters and all the heavens and all the hells are within us. What personalities, characters, archetypes, symbols, signposts we respond to and why all of that is so important in terms of answering a very simple question. Who are, who am I? Who are we? Who are you? Not what? So when somebody asks me who I am, if my response is, based on a job that I did or based on the fact that I have a podcast that I'm proud of or that I have um, interests and ambitions and missions, that's not who I am. That's what I am. 
who I am is something that is possibly as yet unarticulated. And being able to say, I know who I am, is beyond name. And it might tie into origins, and it might tie into legacies, it might tie into my present, my future. Ravelli, as we discussed last week, suggests that the present isn't even real. And that where we get to very quickly is that who we are is not defined by anything that we have been taught. This week at the NAACP Awards, Gabrielle Union and her husband, Dwayne Wade, accepted an award. I'm not even sure what it was for. And Gabrielle Union, who is somebody that I greatly admire for a number of reasons, especially that not only is she so bold with her own truth and so bold with the truth, but she's also taking on what I would call every possible convention she can find. Fashion conventions, marriage conventions. And this week, under an NAACP post of her speech, she said the words, gender nonconformist. And I had to comment that I truly believe that the implication that nonconformist as part of that is a recognition of a system that people are conforming to. When I truly believe that the whole thing is made up and that if people are more gender enlightened about themselves, because frankly, I think it's like blood type. I think it's a, a it's a private matter. That ultimately, we can use words that are more positive than nonconformist. Nobody's rebelling against anything because the systems and processes and signposts and protocols that we left behind when we crossed into the 21st century also include all of these assumptions that we make about each other. And why do we make any kind of guess regarding somebody's identity? Because we want to know who they are, not what they are. The small talk around what do you do for a living I'm a student, I'm a teacher, I'm a doctor, I'm a nurse, I'm a firefighter, I'm a police officer. Okay. It doesn't define you. It certainly contributes to how you spend your one, six, eight and how you invest your time and the experiences that you have and how that shapes your psyche and how it shapes your conscious mind and how it shapes your subconscious mind without your knowing it. And, you know, it is affected by and probably influenced by your ego and equally the choice you made 
um, as to what you wanted to be is based on your ego and is also based on need and is also based on trust in yourself and making those decisions. And it might even be based on circumstance. But it's not who you are. It's not who you are. The labels that society gives us, the labels we've been given us, that even, even, even the name that I have been given, does that absolutely define who I am? So that's the journey that we're on. And the reason why we're on that journey, I am on that journey and I'm inviting you to go with me step by step is because I truly believe that we're coming to a point where we are going to have to be able to answer who we are to ourselves in order to be able to understand and process and comprehend the future that is awaiting us. 2024, 2028, and 2032, and 2036 are going to be century-defining elections for President of the United States. They are going to be century-defining elections cycles for Great Britain. Every English-speaking country, including Canada, Australia, New Zealand, the United States of America, and England, are going to experience such change over the next 13 years of my life that by the time I am 78 years old, 25 years from now, I will have experienced more change in the last third of my life than I did in the first two thirds of my life. And I think that that's true for all of us. One of the ways that I was explaining this to myself <laughs> was that the 2032 election is nine years from now. In the United States of America, nine-year-old boys and girls Nine-year-old children are going to be able to vote in 2032. Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez might be running for president for the first time or might be running for re-election, but she is very much their voice. And both sides of the aisle know that. So there is definitely the idea that there's another voice out there that we might know the name of or we might not know the name of at this point. But that election is critical. The 2028 election is critical because the 2024 election is critical and that's just around the corner. If you're a political strategist, those are big dominoes. Right. And the midterms are little dominoes. And then there's smaller dominoes around local elections and interim elections. 
But what's the truth? That you could write a plan. You could write a plan right now. Defining all of the potential election signposts according to the process that we follow. It's the same thing in the UK. It's the same thing in New Zealand where Jacinda Ahern has just stepped out. And where the opposition party are already saying that they're just gonna they're just gonna rewrite the law if they come into power. And you know what they're gonna do? They're just gonna basically overturn every single one of her policies and decisions as though she never existed, just like Stalin did, just like Khrushchev did. <laughs> Completely try to eradicate her existence. Meanwhile, she's probably stepping into the UN job. And Christine Lagarde, well, Macron might be looking over his shoulder. He might think that he has a deal with Lagarde and he helped her get the IMF job, but I'm not sure that he can beat Le Pen the next go round. And can France take the weight of a moderate? France probably needs an extremist voice, and unfortunately the extremist voice that's hot in the polls is, of course, Le Pen, the niece. So I think we're going to have to confront a future that we're not prepared for. It sounds ridiculous because most people will say, well, they're not, we're not prepared for, we weren't prepared for the future before. Yes, we were. A lot of what happened previously is definitely going, is definitely defining what's happening at the moment. Okay. I'll give you an example. King Charles can't find a band to play his coronation concert. Okay. People are turning him down. I have to be honest with you. I I I I would I find it surprising that they're not just doing a quiet ceremony. The oil that will be used during his coronation has been consecrated at the Vatican. How many people relate to that? What are they casting a spell on it? More people might relate to it if they said they cast a spell on the oil than if they say it's consecrated by the Holy Father. And you know. Is that the Britain that people want to be a part of? And even then, his ex-wife's death remains a cloud over him. His broken relationship with one of his sons, who's basically on Netflix saying, yeah, but my family basically not only, you know, are complicit in my mother's death, but... They also reject the fact that both my wife and my son have blood in their veins, which means that they can never be monarchy. I mean, come on. What kind of not what what what, what kind of life are people living where the man has a sixteen billion pound fortune, is king of England? And is that far removed from the identity of the country? So 
I think that the things that have happened are defining the present, but the things that are defining the future, they are they are beyond what any of us has experienced. So I think we're going to have to know who we are in order to be able to swallow not only the bitter pills, but the sugar pills and the truth about what's happening in the world. For example, we can't get the news about the future from news organizations because the scrutiny of news organizations is now so critical that if I watch MSNBC, I immediately volunteer for a part-time job because that means that I have to look at them not as a source, but as a broadcaster, somebody who's entertaining me. And if they're giving me information that I believe is real, that I believe is data, then I have to look at their source and go to the source myself and scrutinize their source. And until I find the person doing original qualitative and quantitative research without an algorithm affecting the quantitative research or creating a curve, then we start to understand maybe where the data, where the facts are coming from. Now, that might sound like a lot, but unfortunately, <laughs> that is the reality of the situation that we live in, and we can't be detached from it. We can't be detached from it. If you're at dinner and somebody turns around to you and says, oh, where did you hear that? You say Fox News. Or you say the BBC. They're going to scrutinize your source. And we know that the same is true when we talk about ourselves. When we self-diagnose, when we search, when we create, people want to know the origins of our truth. How did you learn that? How did you know that? Where did you get that? What, does, what, what, what made you find that out? I've had thousands of hours of therapy. People are critically aware of the fact that I originally went to therapy because of my insomnia. And I, 30 years later, now have become accredited um, enough to be able to observe <clears throat> mental health counseling sessions and therapy sessions. And a lot of this journey that I'm on personally, that I'm inviting you to take with me, is based on the idea that I see it. I see it in the work that I'm doing um, with the group for strategy against serious violence. I see it in the work that I'm doing with the similar group who, um, for the strategy against violence for, against women and girls. Um, I see it in the work that I do um, with charities. I see it in the work that I do um, around mental health. 
I see it in everyday life. People are questioning their identity. And yes, this is a personal situation for me. I have my identity under scrutiny for 14, 15 months now, longer even. It turns out that in 2015, they made a mistake about my identity. And that's one of the reasons why the last seven years has been the way it has. And everybody knows me well enough, or anybody who knows me well enough knows, I truly believe it takes seven years to turn things around. Well, they made their mistake in October of 2015. Six months earlier, it was April 2015. And it was April 2015 when my life changed in a second, in a heartbeat. And it's about to happen again because they're going to realize they made a mistake in 2015. They're going to realize that I am who I say I am. And that my identity is cannot be questioned. And that, um, you know, the choice that I have to make around my life isn't a choice. Because I am more of who I am with the people that I love. And in a country that doesn't reject me um, as much as other countries do. <laughs> so beyond all that, that's where we're going. Who we are. And I think that that has a lot to do with how we see time. And how we see age. And how we see what role time plays in our lives, which we've been talking about, and how we define time, and then how, what age um, determines and what it makes us think of ourselves and what it makes us believe is possible or believe of ourselves. Somebody who is 21 years younger than me called themselves old this week and I had to laugh and I said, look, if you're old, then I'm basically a Martian that's been stranded on earth because we were looking for water. And I found that funny. And Somebody who is 32 years younger than I am, um, that I counsel, went to their first job interview last week, and they got a second interview, so they went for a second interview this week. First time ever in their lives. Tie, shirt. I actually gave them a tie, because they didn't have one. And they, they are ready to admit that they don't know anything. No one told them anything. 
When I was 21 years old, I felt like I had to know everything. I was under so much pressure. For the, last, for the previous eight years, I'd basically taken care of myself other than providing myself with a roof over my head. My mom let me live with her. I mean, that was basically the situation. I mean, between the ages of, you know, 15 and 21, I mean, I probably relied on my mother financially for the sum of probably $2,500. And since then, let's just say that I've covered that. But it's not about where we are. It's what we expect of ourselves at that age, at any age. I'm 53 years old. I don't see it as anything other than I'm probably halfway through my life. And I have a long time left on this planet to do a lot of things. And my commitment to my personal health and my commitment to my um, personal strength and my commitment to my personal goals and ambitions all are tied into the idea that I truly believe that what I know now is nothing compared to what I'm going to know in 25 years. Everybody likes to tell the story about Samuel Jackson getting his first movie role when he was 46 years old. If you talk, if you watch any interviews with Samuel Jackson about that time in his life, he sat down with his agent after Jungle Fever and they said, right, here's what we're going to do. We're going to say yes to everything. So that if you didn't notice at Blockbuster Video, there was a time when all of a sudden you went and rented a video. Or at the beginnings of Netflix when they used to send you DVDs through the mail or the post. And then in, you know, later on. And you go through and you can see that he's in hundreds of movies. And the reason why, that was a strategy for them at 46 years old. It was only seven years ago for me. Am I inspired by Samuel Jackson? Who is it? But I don't need to be. Because when I was 46 years old, I already knew. When I was 36 years old, I was already I already knew. When I was 26 years old, my mentor was 53 years old. And he said to me, you can be in a rush all you want, but it's only going to happen when it's supposed to happen. It's not going to happen when you make it happen. Because if you try to make it happen, you're going to put way too much energy in doing something that you're not ready for. I remember the first time I got a bonus and somebody said to me, who was older than me and had been in the markets a lot longer than me, said, you don't know what money is yet. They were right. Both of them. I had that incredible urge to be something by the time I was 30. No one I know has ever accomplished that 
without losing everything to do it. And by the time I was 30 years old, I was ready to sit down and start having panic attacks. And what was previously thought to be a heart attack was actually a massive panic attack that left me crippled and unable to operate or communicate for six weeks of my life. And this was three months before my 30th birthday. Now, when I was 21, did I think that nine years later, one of the things that I would be when I was 30 was broken? No. I was enamored by the idea of perpetual growth, but that's a fantasy. And I had to learn that lesson. But it's because I was putting so much focus on age. And I hadn't taken a considered view of the expectations I was, I was putting on myself and the burdens that I was giving myself, the problems I was creating for myself, by believing that there was something to do with how old I am, what I'd already been through, and what I deserve and what I didn't get. And all of these things that aren't things because I thought that they had meaning, but in actuality were, were holding me back. They were tethering me to a fantasy that I needed to have a legacy much earlier on in my life. And now, of course, I realize that my legacy is all of my life because I understand the principles of a considered view. I'll read from more my book I published in 2017. Few mentioned moods. An example of a considered view, one designed to encourage a decision, is found in the modern question around the racing to space so many companies are running in. Tesla, Lockheed Martin, and Blue Horizon, amongst others, are all selling the vision and raising money on the back of it that they will get to, insert name of planet here. Now, when I read all of the published material from these competitors and find that two things are true. One, it is ridiculous that they believe they will be able to accomplish the feat alone. And two, it is a team planning to travel the furthest who is ahead in the race. The reason for one is that rocket sciences are difficult and have a tendency to be expensive and wrong before they are right. Also, despite the intense addiction to innovation that we humans suffer from, we have already visited the moon, which means that the Earth to the moon and back is a trip we can dream, sell, cost, plan, design, construct, test, ensure, and execute and learn from. I know that despite Kubrick's deathbed admission and gather that the team planning to use the moon as a bus stop, Lockheed Martin, will probably launch first. The team who are planning to also use the International Space Station, I think, of, I thank Alec John now, as a stop, will also find some success. Now, getting from the ISS to Mars means smaller crafts and easier launches and lots of robots and supplies and unmanned yet intelligent ships that use some form of neural network or artificial intelligence at the core. Once on Mars, the team can launch convoys to Saturn's rings and Titan 
will only have to get from Mars to there. Not Earth to there. Earth to Moon, Moon to ISS, ISS to Mars, Mars to Titan via the new ISS orbiting Saturn, and then there to Triton, avoiding Neptune because there's too much ice. Few mention fuel. From Titan to Triton will also mean that humans can follow intelligent convoys and land on planets already prepared for them. The critical element is the idea that sitting down and seeing that plan helps to create the urgency and the incremental steps required to make planning something so grand as something so feasible, or more feasible, or possible. The reason we want to go beyond Neptune is because we are out of oil. And we think we need another fossil fuel at the volumes we require them. Remember, actual green technology, actual green innovation from the Earth, wind, solar, water, produces 100 times the demand that humans have now for fossil fuels. About 160 years ago, we discovered crude oil and how to harness it. Up until about 2005, we used a trillion barrels. We will use the next trillion by about 2035. That's only 12 years from now. We will use the next trillion by 2042. That means we have approximately 25 years to get to a planet like Earth that we can ship a fossil fuel alternative from because by the time we are using batteries to power our homes, cars, robots, phones, and planes and trains, we will reach the point where we demand both too many batteries and too many charging points and too many minerals to go into the batteries. We will not be able to charge or invent fast enough and most likely will peak when we are using one type of battery to charge another. We are human. That is what we do. That's an example of a considered view. So with that in mind, let's finish up on time. Perhaps it is a punch card. Somewhere in London, I imagine, literally, on a long cobbled stone street between booksellers and globe dealers, I place a shop where you take your 168, your punch card, and get it read. The clerk huffs and prints a report that explains that you are right to walk home from Trafalgar Square, but wrong to gaze upon the swan at the serpentine for so long. While this remains a fantastic shop from a silly modern fairy tale, I expect that we will measure our uses of droids, robots, we will most likely stop referring to these beings as robots. And the way we look at our phones now when we look at screen time, for example, in the same way, we will have to explain why we have hacked our Roomba 17 to wash walls and hang paintings. Those two activities in themselves create expectations in me that my character here for illustrative purposes wants to get to know. London better gains some level of physical fitness from light exercise and is preoccupied with something that makes them stare at swans. We all look at swans. I have a particular penchant for signets and always let my wind wander across their gray down, wondering if it is oily enough from birth or do they have to wait to dive beneath the water. You are the designer and keeper and clerk of your own 168, and it tells you when you are brave enough to analyze it, what you are becoming. In turn, you can decide what you want and then do the things that make you that.
that give you that. I have a knack for asking myself if I want to be the person who doesn't own a copy of his favorite album, the actual one, and not the diminishing cocktail party answer. So, to summarize, you get a finite amount of time. If you want to be something specific, then you have to plan the things you need to do to get what it is you want and thus become the person you want to be. Yes, the person you become is based on what you do to get what you want. More on this red rag to a bull later. Somewhere in here, we have already touched on the normative, use of, normative universality of time within the confines of your conscious mind. You are probably not doing your planning in anywhere near enough detail to have a considered view. That last point. Before I move on to how you know what you want, I will explain that so far you have been tricked, as I have, into accepting something without knowing where you were sold it. You get 168 hours a week, 24 hours a day, 1,440 minutes a day, and so on. We all do. We have from birth without knowing anything about it, and we will until one day it will all end. And if we have planned something, we will have to be excused because we will be gone or dead. I will explain that again. The time within the framework of normative universality, where there is structure within the chaos that is the known universe governed by time, gravity, weak and strong magnetic forces, and our human tendency to doubt most of what we hear unless we invented it or think the presenter of the alien idea is attractive, or we think they can help us in some way. Yes, I am suggesting that we tend to agree with people we find attractive, until they stop being as attractive as they were when we first met them, and we are left arguing about the size eggs they buy, or the brand coffee they insist on putting in the pantry. Or we find out what their partner, spouse, looks like. Or something they explained months before that you let rest until the inevitable rot set in and the damp started to rise on what was a tarred affair but finally relegated to a comfortable squeeze. No, I have not, am not experiencing this. In the past, my relationships have ended with bomb blasts, figuratively. So normatively, you and I get the time and it is possible that you accept that 24 hours multiplied by 7 days is 168 hours, and the universe we inhabit at the moment measures time by keeping 24 hours in a day. Universally, you can only plan based on the idea that you will survive the next 168 hours. The universality is in the idea that we actually don't know anything about the next 168 hours, and we are speculating or guessing when we are doing the planning. In fact, a reasonable attempt at the probabilities associated with surviving the next seven days we are planning might take too much time and suggest to the casual observer of the punch card that you would like to become an actuary. Check out Feltron. Credit has to go to a graphic designer I discovered in 2007 who goes by the name of Feltron. Google him. Look at his work. Order an annual report. Marvel at the commitment he has to craft his record of his life in such minute detail that he can publish a compelling annual report of his life. Miles traveled, gym memberships canceled, cameras lost on tour buses in Greece. I made that up. He makes the mundane something we can revel in. 
And I contacted him once to try and engage him in the idea that decades from now, when we are carrying devices and droids instead of continuing to call them phones, his annual reports will be how we are billed for the intangible services a droid or device provides. The hours of wireless internet access they themselves will be powered by and charged remotely through the ubiquitous internet. The number of applications and environments coming soon to a device like Oculus near you, you download and use and I could go on, but I will not, as this is not meant to be a treatise from a strategic framework for a company who used to be in telecommunications and now has no idea how to regard themselves or refer to what it is they do. So to Feltron, available on Twitter, and according to his annual reports, a citizen of the microverse below West Broadway, I offer thanks and express gratitude. To finish, time is a gift and not a tyrant. I once sat across from somebody in a designer room in Thailand and told a story about the nun to someone I hold dear. She seemed amused and summarily ignored it. Years later, I watched her. I wish her the happiness she could muster, knowing full well that she might not have time for thank you cards. Now... She is the most important person in my life. Ultimately, where we get to is that most stories aren't mine. They're not based on doubt or agnes of God. I'm yet to decide that I would offer to round out my There Are Priests in It trilogy, Ash Wednesday, A Prayer for the Dying, that film with Robert De Niro and Robert Duvall with their brothers, True Confessions, Sleepers, The Mission, I'm not sure. What I do know is that I hope I get my chance to commission a trilogy <laughs> from Tom Ford. I would ask him and pay him to make films based on Appointment in Samara, couples, and finally on the story I'm about to share. I first read it in Intelligent Life, which is what people who used to read The Face and interview an arena grew up to read. It is published by The Economist, or it was, and I often speculate privately, as no one would care, that it is their answer to Atlantic Monthly. Perhaps not. They haven't published much that I would consider controversial or centrist, except for the beautiful explanation as to why Andres Iniesta was the best footballer to play his sport, which was weeks before the 2010 World Cup, where he scored the winner against a Dutch anti-football machine. So around 2008... I'm guessing for Googling the nun that went to art school intelligent life, and you will most likely find the original article. I read about this nun. I paraphrase. And yes, I'm repeating myself. Because it's important. I think it's important that the person that I love, that the people that I care for, that anybody within my circle of influence, anybody listening now, Consider the story in some detail. She had entered the Abbey at 16 and emerged 50 years later to attend art college in Shoreditch and live among us. She explained in the article that it was difficult for difficult. And for example, she had a negative physical reaction leaving the building. Halls of residence, I expect, for the first two weeks. I shrugged and kept reading. 
Finally, she returned to her mother superior, who asked what painting she would share to describe to her experience to her sisters, who may never leave the Abbey. She explained that she would paint a world that was streets and streets of people wearing black and headphones, ignoring one another. A coffee in one hand and a phone in the other, treating time as though it was a tyrant and not a gift. Can you see it? I did. Instantly. I'm reminded of her view of our lives every day, especially as I consider time and its properties and try and reason its influence on me. From the chaos that is Truman Capote's quote from Beaten the Devil, it was not prolonged my adult life, my travels, my love. I was once reminded on a dark day that no one could ever take my past from me, as I have benefited from it too much for anyone to think I simply one day appeared on the earth as I am, unafraid of falling from higher than Icarus dared, willing to be chained to the rock because of my reverence towards those who try and keep the fire to themselves, willing to work until I have nothing left to offer. Ovid was right about one thing, despite the fact that I disagree with him on both age and time. He says that time devours all things. I think that's also true of loss and grief and distance and sadness and exile and peaches and all of the things that are not things because I ascribe meaning to them. Somewhere in there, I hope that there is the beginning or maybe all of a realization. I think we are all responsible for understanding that when Bruce Lee talked about be like water, he was talking about flow. When he was talking about flow, he was talking about recognizing your energy, the source of your energy, the fountain of your energy, your chi. Once you do that, you don't need to be motivated to do anything. You just do the things that are within the normative universality and the healthy limits and the boundaries of your personality that constitute your river, that constitute your flow. But what's the truth? The truth is, is we can't just randomly walk around because there is no such thing as randomness. More on that later. But what we do is we can plan, like those dominoes lined up, what we're going to start the day doing and where we're going to end the day. Some of us start with the end in mind if we're highly sensitive people and we work backwards. I know that I have to eat by 8 o'clock at night because I'm going to fast for anywhere between 14 and 16 hours. And if I eat at 9, 14 hours later is 11 and 16 hours later is 1. And I got to be honest with you, it's difficult to make it to 1 o'clock in the afternoon. So that means, can I do it till 12? Maybe I'd rather eat at 7, and so that means I have to fast till 11. And yes, this is what I think about. And this is one of the ways I plan my day. So that means I have to know that I'm going to have to cook. And then I know that I eat every two hours. So then I know how many times from the time that I break my fast I'm going to have to eat. So I understand what food I have to prep. And I understand exactly how much effort I'm going to have to put into whatever it is that I'm consuming that particular day.
And beyond all of that, there's trips to the markets and there's trips to the cash machine and there's trips to the bank and there's running personal finance spreadsheets in order to make sure that I'm not overspending. And that genuinely understanding myself, including stretching, doing yoga, meditating, and cleaning, hygiene, all of the things that make up me in a day. I find that motion and movement are critical to my mood. The more I move, the healthier I am and the better I feel. When confronted with insecurities this week, I was able to do a lot more movement than I was last week when I was suffering from extraordinary tightness and discomfort. And the truth is that I was able to reacquaint my body with a lot of the movement that I needed to be acquainted with in terms of my stamina and in terms of my strength. And that made me feel great. That made me feel as though I was closer to my true self again. And that I could still plan my day. Because as I move through my day, I like to know what I'm going to be doing next, not only what I'm doing then. I found a new rule lately, which is if at first you don't succeed, try, try again, actually applies to me because I am the type of person that until it's resolved, I will stay focused on it. But that eats away at my time on a regular basis. So now I'm into trying things three times. If I'm trying to connect a piece of software, trying to download something, if I'm trying to thread a needle, if I'm trying to find something in the supermarket, things get three opportunities with me and then they're gone because they have to move on. I have to move on. We're moving forward. That's it. And I've become quite excited about doing things that way. I know where I have to be on Saturday morning at six o'clock. I know where I have to be on Saturday morning at three o'clock. I know where I have to be uh, Friday night at 11.59 p.m. I know where I have to be <laughs> uh, Friday at 11 and so on. And I can work backwards through this coming week and I can tell you down to a lot of detail what it is I'm gonna be doing. But the interesting part about all of that is it takes away the anxiety, it takes away the pressure, it takes away the question of what I'm going to be doing next. And it does help me operate within my healthy limits, and it does help me operate outside of the need for anything that doesn't entertain me or medicate me to get me away from the things that distract me so that I can get back into the flow that responds to the energy that I recognize within myself to be true. And as a result of doing all of that, do I get more done? Oh, I get a lot of things done. 
I definitely fill my days. But am I being true to who I really am? If somebody asks me what I do, I like to say writer. But I got lucky this week because a deadline was actually moved. Because I couldn't sit much last week, so I couldn't write as much as I wanted to. Even with the dictation software, I still have to go through it line by line. Because I don't trust the spell checks on the machines yet. They can't tell the difference between defuse, D-E-F-U-S-E, and diffuse, D-I-F-F-U-S-E. So as a result, I know that anything like a neural network or an artificial intelligence isn't ready to handle my particular brand of prose <laughs> because it can't handle a two-syllable word. So as a result, my insecurities this week, they stemmed from questioning how much value I have as a writer. And then, of course, I was confronted with something that told me that my writing is a gift. <laughs> and someone who I respect made me realize that I'm creating more now than I ever have because of the commitment and the depth I'm putting into being a better writer than I was yesterday. A better artist, a better creative than I was yesterday. I think it's obvious to anybody that knows me that the reason why I write is so that I can sleep at night. And submitting pieces for analysis or competition or publication has so little to do with the actual reason why I get up in the morning and want to fill the page with words, descriptions, colors, suggestions, opinions, and how that task in and of itself might make me feel reconciled, i.e. people can read something that I wrote and say, yes, I confirm he is the author of this piece and thus he is a writer. I know that that doesn't define who I am. It doesn't answer the question, who am I? That remains 
an answer we're going to discover together. So, the world thinks that they understand time, and the world thinks that they comprehend age. That at 21, people think that they understand the pressures and the expectations being that they put on themselves. See, we believe that society puts pressure on us. But I have a friend who graduated high school, went to work in construction, and had remained a construction worker for the next 20 years, and retired from that based on the idea that he had bought a share of Disney every single week for 20 years straight. and reinvested all of the dividends. And then he opened a business and kept on doing that. He graduated high school in 1987. I mean, you're talking 36 years ago. Thirty-six years of buying shares of Disney and reinvested dividends. I think he did it for Coca-Cola as well. Well, the point is, the last time I spoke to him, he couldn't even remember how old he was. Because he said he felt 18. He still felt free. And why did he do that? He told me that he didn't want the pressure his older sister had of graduating college at 22 and needing to look for a job. He just wanted to do something that was going to afford him this plan, pay his rent, pay his groceries, pay for his gas, his car insurance, some clothes, maybe a couple of beers after softball games, a trip home once a year to see his parents, but that he was willing to wait 20 years to be more free than anybody else he knew. Ovid wrote that age destroys everything. His example was Helen's beauty. Of course, Helen was Menelaus' wife who was abducted, and then she was the face that sailed a thousand ships and started the Trojan War. Paris and Agamemnon went to war, and Achilles was eventually killed. And you can read as much as you want. But Helen survived, and she grew old. And Ovid writes that she lost her beauty. But a hero of mine likes to remind us that the way you look should be the least interesting thing about you. And I think a lot of the way that we look People think is divine by how old we are. People see us, they say, how old are they? How old are they? How old are you? People ask me 
how old I am all the time. I am more than happy to tell them that I'm 53 years old. And they always say, no, you're not. Obviously, they all think I'm 78. That's not true. A lot of them tell me that there's no way that they believe so. Well, there's the fact that I've been sober for almost seven years now. Six years and change. I think that's definitely affected the way I look. I sleep much better than I did. I do a lot more exercise, better exercise, more meaningful exercise than I used to. And I'm not causing myself extreme pressure or creating a depressive state for myself by running. So the truth is that I don't mind telling people my age. And I think a lot of the way people look, we try to attach it to an age. Why don't we attach it to healthy choices? Why don't we attach it to a lifestyle? Why don't we attach it to um, food choices and meal plans? Why don't we attach it to, dare I say it, their happiness? It's because our ego demands that we have expectations of ourselves and we buy into the fantasy and the lost cause that is finding when our peak moment is going to be. When you talk about Immanuel Kant, you talk about the idea that this is a person who said without question, every swan that you see represents all swans. And because he had never seen a black swan, one didn't exist. And then, of course, when he saw a black swan, it destroyed him. And on his deathbed, as he looked backwards across his life to identify the most important point in his life, he realized it was when he decided there were no black swans, not when he saw one. See, because the moment he decided that there were no black swans, the universe shifted into place to put a black swan in his path. No, a black swan already existed. The universe didn't create a black swan because Kant said there were none. Kant was simply too normative in his thinking to allow for the idea that something existed in his future that he could neither conceive nor comprehend. Ovid wrote, that age destroys everything. I think Kant could have taken a very different view and realized that the moment he saw a black swan, it liberated him, it freed him, it evolved him, it gave him an understanding of the universe that he didn't previously have. And that as a result, Age was an asset. Growing older was an asset. Experience is an asset. Failure is an asset. 
These are all things that eventually pay off in dividends if we accept them and understand them for what they are. They are signposts along the road of what? Not getting older, becoming more human, becoming stronger because we're becoming more vulnerable, allowing for resilience to drive us and true resilience where we're able to express our needs. We're able to ask for help or we're able to commune and share and trust and evolve. And where we're actually able to understand that when you are able to say, I've seen this before to a room full of bright young executives or bright young account managers, or employees, or your children, or your family. It's the gift of experience that is not a consequence of age. It is the benefit of age. And being more enlightened about traveling forward through an expanding universe gives us all the opportunity to accept how much stronger, how much smarter, how much more evolved, how much more interesting we are because of the time that has passed beneath our feet and how we have in the normative parlance of everyday society aged. When in truth we've grown stronger. And Ovid learns this lesson. Because he outlasts his exilers and returns to Rome and publishes Metamorphoses, and that's why I can quote it here. Age doesn't destroy anything, entropy does. The force in the universe that we can possibly do nothing about. Most people who don't understand or experience entropy are the ones who don't suffer from it because they don't regard it. But everything is disintegrating physically, sure. But we also have to remember that the universe is expanding at an, acceler at, at, at an accelerated rate. Therefore, we are in perpetual growth. We are not in perpetual decline, as we believe, as we are taught when they try to inject the fear into us that our lives will come to an end. We have so much more time on this planet than we believe. In 25 years, I'm going to be 78 years old. I won't even be as old as my father is now. <laughs> my mother will turn 80 next year. I won't even be as old as she is now. Don't tell her I told you that, by the way. She used to tell me as a child that a woman's age should always remain a mystery to me. I realize now at how negative and patriarchal 
my mother's words were. But of course, it would have been that she was subject to such scrutiny over her own age. Because she had to grow up so fast. She was brought to England when she was 14 years old. Her grandmother, who had gone to full-time work at 15, insisted that she move out when she turned 15. And she lived in a boarding house with another, shared a room in a boarding house with another girl who got pregnant and disappeared in the middle of the night. And the mod, the urban myths at the time in the early 60s in England were that well, those have been 1959. The people went to a place called Gretna Green to get married to elope. And the woman who ran the boarding house asked where her friend was, and my mother didn't know. And my mother was packed and in complete fear of where she would go or what she would do. And the woman said, you can stay if you help me around the house. So she stayed in the double room and she worked while she went to school and then she went to nursing school. She was a dental nurse on Rattlebone Road in Birmingham first and then she became um, a full-blown nursing student. And she met my father in 1963. She was 19 years old. 19. She was married at 22 years old. When she was 25 years old in 1969, she had me 25 years old. Within a year, at 26 years old, she was alone. My father had left. And she had taken me to Jamaica, where I stayed for a year and a half while she worked in England and saved money and then went to New York where her sister lived and she and her mother and she tried to understand what needed to be done in order for us to live in the United States of America. And then she came and got me after leaving me in Jamaica for a year and a half. And in therapy, I learned that we never bonded. That we never knew one another in the earliest moments of my life. So as a result, there were a lot of questions about why she is so detached from my origin story. But that's neither here nor there. Because now my mother is, she has a PhD. I don't agree with her politics. I don't agree with her 
the way she sees the world through her faith. I don't agree with the way she judges people and condemns them. I don't agree with so much, but what I understand is she's got a PhD, she's got a master's degree, she's got a bachelor's degree. She had to make a lot of decisions about me while I was growing up that made me think she wasn't my mother. Or that she, well, certainly made me feel as though she didn't like me. But she's going to be 80 next year. And that will be 65 years after she felt abandoned and alone at 15. And then in jeopardy of being homeless, houseless, at 16 years old. And how she had to evolve and grow very quickly, despite the expectations that she had for her life. And I think that she is a golden example of the idea that at 25, with me under her arm, how many years on the planet did she believe that she had? Did she even have time to contemplate her own mortality? Probably not. Married to a drunk. Gambler, a terrible gambler, by the way, and lost to the idea that she probably didn't understand what she was going to have to do. And the person that she is today, there's no way that she believed that she would be that person. I invite you to look at your own age and think of yourself as somebody that's going to live until you're 100. And, 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 and realize that no matter what age you are, you have so much time left on this planet. I mean, look at George O'Keefe. We wouldn't know her artwork if not for her commitment to her artwork in her 90s. So I invite you to look at age as something that is giving you something, giving us something, giving us all something, a gift. It is giving us a gift of a more considered view of the, our lives, of the people around us, of the universe, and of ourselves. And that it's giving us an opportunity to be reminded that we know who we are. Ovid said that age is a destroyer. Well, I am Martin Johnstone and I disagree.
Thank you for listening. Tune in next week when we will be talking about how age has come to define various aspects, realities of our existence, such as physical health, beauty, money, and our place in the world.